Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Jay Yang and John Bugnacki. Jay is the founder and CEO of Tassin and the chief architect of Project TXA. John is Tassin's deputy general counsel and the director of regulatory policy. Jay, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thank you for coming on. Um, So I guess... We'll just start a little bit by introducing people to what Tassin is, and um, that'll give a, a, a good idea about maybe why we might uh, want to talk to you on the Hacking Safe podcast, um, because I think the work you're doing is very interesting and very important. Um, it's sort of in the crypto space, but in a way, it's you, I believe you managed to differentiate yourself from a lot of the other crypto companies and crypto exchanges by the technical innovation that you have set up around it. So I guess we can just start with that. Um, Jay, if you want to go yeah. first and just um, give us a brief overview of, of the Tassin project. <clears throat> Tassin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, all good. Um, so, so like when I, I mean, I traded quite a bit since 2006, like when I, <laughs> right after I got my first job, um, equities and things like that. And I also traded, you know, crypto and thinking about sort of like what kind of exchange I want to trade, uh, there were a couple characteristics that I came up with. One is that <clears throat> it has to be fast. Like the some of the crypto exchanges at the time when I tra- started trading, you know, prevented things like you know logins from happening when there were a lot of activity, uh, or you know, decentralized exchanges are you know overwhelmed that they were extremely slow. And then second factor is. <clears throat> um, it has to be non-custodial. So we've all seen what happens when we entrust money to some third, you know, third-party agent like FTX, where they do irresponsible things with money, where they use it for, you know, their own financial engineering and things like that. So I mean, self-custody is absolute must in, in my view. And then the third thing is that for <clears throat> um, people who are um, familiar with crypto space. Different chains are their own pockets of money, and they rarely can cross boundaries unless there is a centralized exchange or bridges, and they present security risks of their own. So the third aspect of the ideal exchange that I would like to trade in is that it also has to be uh, cross-chain. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of useless because then you can only trade in one, one chain or you have to like you know give up custody to, for it to be a centralized exchange. So those are three things that Tassin as a company is helping to tackle to build this exchange. Um, And then as a part of sort of like public infrastructure we're building that allows for, you know, know, exchanges to have non-custodial nature, we're building a settlement network that allows for cross-chain settlement. And that's the project TXA. Mm, Okay, so there's a few components to this, right? There's the non-custodial exchange, and then there's also the settlement network. Mm -hmm. And I think the real innovation here, and and you can maybe describe this a little bit more in detail, is the fact that there's this almost hybridization that allows for, um, you know, in principle, uh, an increase in performance, or or rather like not a loss in performance, while also maintaining the uh the security and the privacy of a traditional uh non-custodial exchange is that right that's exactly right so i mean um john can speak more on the regulatory side of it and how we design to 
make sure that this, you know, kind of defensively, it, it defensively protects the traders and then protects all the network participants. But yeah, absolutely. So one can think of the settlement network as uh, this open architecture where uh, the protocol is the same for all the other exchanges that build on top of it so that, you know, they all build as a non-custodial exchange. They all build as a, you know, cross-chain, uh, they, they can all benefit from cross-chain settlement and so on and so forth. So this open architecture, one could think of it like, <clears throat> what if uh, Visa payment network were open architecture, right? And uh, what if uh, payment processors and banks and card issuers uh, all know the rules of the game uh, very clearly and it's all, you know, transparent to a certain extent, right? Uh, so that's, that's sort of like the idea behind the TXA, um, you know, cross-chain settlement network. And this is what's so mm -hmm. revolutionary and really serves a lot of the interests that we care about. Freedom, autonomy, decentralization, yeah. because we haven't simply built a centralized exchange or a decentralized exchange trying to gate things behind us. That in addition to the users of the exchange that Tassin is building, Project TXA is creating really the infrastructure for the future of finance, right. the future of people being able to have uh, absolute security that their assets will never be uh, stolen, be able to express their own creativity. That there are there are types of exchanges and use use cases for this incredibly high grade and revolutionary architecture that we haven't thought of. Then they'll be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess for people that are less familiar with the crypto space, maybe not everyone listening is uh, super uh, plugged into the uh, to the arena. Um, when you talk about the importance of this cross chain settlement and when you're saying that this could be something like the future backbone of uh, of finance. Yeah. Are you imagining um, something like uh, government issued stable coins or um you know, a U.S. backed stable coin or something uh, along those sorts uh, being involved in this process where there's sort of a <laughs> universal uh, protocol for exchanging all of these various tokens, including uh, variations of sovereign or semi-sovereign ones. Yeah. So what's a very <clears throat> interesting point? I mean, of course, like the this in interesting point is that these blockchains, um, you know, again, are kind of like isolated pockets of money where they rarely have transfer of money between the chains. And what the settlement network will allow is linking those blockchains uh, in the context of like asset to asset exchange. So which, you know, kind of segues into what you mentioned, which is, you know, um, if uh, stable coins are issued uh, by either private organizations or, you know, states or, you know, whatever it is, it, usually they only pick one chain and it, it doesn't go to the other chains or they have to like negotiate the boundary somehow. Um, so what this would allow <clears throat> is purchase of asset that sits on another chain using a stable coin on another chain or vice versa. So it makes that process incredibly straightforward uh, mm -hmm. and it makes the settlement process incredibly straightforward. So basically one could think of it like, you know, <clears throat> what if we break down the you know, barrier uh, that prevents flow of capital between the chains? And that's sort of like a larger implication that allows for, you know, not only more like financial sovereignty, because like you, your, your, your extent to which you're financially sovereign 
uh, it currently only extends to like how secure a one particular network is or how much money you have on one particular network, right? But what if mm -hmm. you can cross the boundary, you know, seamlessly and trustlessly? And that's sort of like another aspect of the settlement network that really benefits the average person. Yeah. So I wanted to drill down a little bit on this aspect of security and privacy within the networks, because yeah. a lot of people that are uh, skeptical or or maybe they're open to it, but they're critical of crypto as a space, um, always bring up these issues of um, either hacks or mm -hmm. exchanges getting shut down and um, depositors not being able to pull out their funds yeah. um, as reasons to be skeptical of the industry, let's say, uh, in the least. Yeah. And I, I see what you're doing as, or I guess I would ask you, do you see what you're doing as a a way to reinstill trust in the crypto industry? And could it maybe assuage some of the uh, fears of regulators? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, of course, like legal side, <laughs> you know, uh, John can opine more on it, but I think at least from the technical side, here's how I look at the problem, which is that what are the, you know, what are the vectors by which all these frauds happen, right? Like the FTXs of the world and hacks. And like, for example, there's a story of <clears throat> one person, you know, whose account in Coinbase getting hacked and losing $300,000 worth of Bitcoin because, well, Bitcoin is not insured. <laughs> so, you know, it's not insured by FDIC or whatever it is. So it's like, you know, money's gone essentially. Um, mm -hmm. So when, when I look at those problems and I say, what um, amount of control these exchanges had that allowed this to happen in the first place? And so when I look at that, then first thing is, okay, they had custody over customer fund and yet they failed to secure it properly. So let's make sure that it's non-custodial. I mean, I should have control, full control over money either way, but it, you know, a lot of times like, the people that we entrust money to, they aren't even doing a good job. So that's one. The second part is um, what about the, you know, what are the things that can happen to a deposit depositor's money? So one of the things that can happen is the account just can get locked for whatever reason, right? I mean, um, you know, maybe the maybe the uh, compliance person is very vindictive and just, just hates your guts, you know, on social media and just makes up a reason and you no longer have access to the account. Right. And it, it does happen. It, it's a it's a real thing. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Customer support people also have tremendous amount of power over, you know, individual user account with perhaps millions of dollars of money in there. And so when that's. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm yeah. just going to elaborate. And um, yeah on what Jay said that, and what's what's so unfortunate about the way that uh, many current uh, crypto products and exchanges, not only from the security point of view, but one of the main aims of blockchain is true sovereignty, true decentralization. And so at the point at which that, let's say for instance, that someone or an entity or individuals have a, a problem with you in real life, that you can effectively be canceled and non-person yeah. and that you're trying to use crypto to be able to be resistant against that yeah. and be able to uh, have a community of like-minded individuals, you know, embracing that not only the spirit of crypto, but ultimately of, uh, you know, American democracy, yeah. everything that we are sold, the founding fathers fought for. And instead you go to crypto and has the exact same problems or many crypto um, products and has the exact same problems uh, that we would find within the traditional financial yeah. system. And sometimes, that's very worrying. Sometimes worse. So yeah. to address your question about like, what are we doing? Like, yes, I think what we're doing is getting rid of these like whole classes of technical 
uh, issues that uh, creates these like hacks and you know uh, people that you entrust money to have over you know overwhelming control over your money, right? Meaning like it's a classic. You know, for you know, your listeners are very well educated, so they'll understand this when I say it's the classic principal agent problem, where the mm-hmm. agents are not acting in the benefit or in concert with principal's you know mission, right? Like that, what they want out of it, and so like by getting rid of those factors technologically, I think at least that creates a higher you know higher level of security. Then you can build on top of it internal controls from the exchange side and other things that you know that you know, that uh, that they have to work around, right? Like, meaning now that we don't have, you know, any control over customer fund, like mm-hmm. that that gi- gives them a better sense of like, how can we make sure that the user experience is a better, how can we secure the portion that we don't have to, that now they exchanges don't have to worry about hot wallets anymore at that point, right? It actually makes mm-hmm. their job easier, not controlling customer money. In, it, in addition to that, uh, the, the very big custody yeah. problem, uh, one of the most exciting trends that we can see uh, within blockchain right now is being able to do cross-chain swaps. Yeah. And so we can do native cross-chain swaps without, so there's the huge uh, various uh, hacking or security or censorship issues within custody, but also um, the way that the, you know most, if not all projects do uh, cross-chain swaps is either through a centralized custodian, which then undermines the decentralized control of your own funds aspect, right. or they're doing it through wrapping or bridging, which also leads to huge right. uh, security risks for people and can undermine their trust. Yeah, in short, like building technical technological solution and paring down some of the controls that the agents have over, you know, your own money. I think will uh, improve like overall, you know, public's trust in. Okay, yeah, crypto guys take security and privacy a lot more seriously because thus far we haven't really proven it. Yes. Um, so I wanted to then, I guess, use that to talk about my next topic, which is going to be the, the regulatory tumult in the United States right now. Um, it seems to me like, despite the fact that a lot of crypto um, really got started here, I mean, America's definitely still at the leading edge. There are some other countries that uh, are, 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 are also um, doing quite well, but m- most many of the major crypto projects, crypto exchanges are still um, at least nominally in the United States. And um, you would think that that would give us a, a leg up in terms of uh, being at the forefront of this. But it seems to me like every single day uh, or almost every every day, I hear something about, you know, the SEC fighting with Coinbase or something like that in the news. And there really is this persistent problem of a kind of tension, I would say, not only between the uh, various aspects of of, um, financial regulation in the U.S. government, but also it seems within government agencies, you know, in in interagency conflicts around how do we um, how do we classify these various projects? How do we regulate them appropriately? What should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed? Um, is there some kind of special treatment or um, carve out that's needed for this industry? Um, and so I wanted to ask you guys uh, a little bit about where you see the state of crypto regulation at the moment in the United States. And are you optimistic <clears throat> about the United States future in this regard? Right. John, you want to? Yeah, sure. I can uh, get started on that. So as regards the current state of crypto regulation in the United States, 
it's um, you'll hear various words when you read articles about um, Coinbase or other exchanges or projects uh, dealing with the CFTC or SEC, and that uh, on the side of the uh, projects that are either have enforcement actions against them or being investigated, and that those words are transparency, regulatory clarity. Because really, in the United States, it's just unfortunately the case, at least in uh, my opinion, that there isn't a ton of regulatory clarity. More or less, what happens now is that we have a long and established series of case law that's related to the treatment of, of securities in the United States. And the case law is particularly expansive when a particular asset isn't covered by an, another regulatory regime. So there are many types of notes and loans that are technically securities, but because they might be covered by the banking legal regime or whatnot, then they're not actively regulated uh, most oftentimes uh, in a direct way by the SEC. The problem is that many of the tokens and aspects of the blockchain eco ecosystem are so revolutionary in certain ways and so different to uh, many past vehicles that a lot of the existing case law is of relatively limited value, especially when a project spends, like Coinbase, for instance, over the years, they've spent tens of millions of dollars on attorneys examining this entire history of case law and saying that, all right, these are the types of projects that we can run in the United States in line with existing securities and commodities law. And the SEC says, okay, uh, you're still uh, being enforced against for uh, operating an unregistered securities exchange for engaging in the unregistered issuance of securities in the United States. And then many of these companies are understandably frustrated because not only they spend tens of millions of dollars in legal fees, but they have engaged some of the best securities attorneys in the United States and around the world to be able to deal with these government agencies. And all that they hear uh, most times from these government agencies is, oh, well, come in and register and come and talk to us. And then what happens? In the case of Coinbase and many of these other companies, they uh, come and provide them huge amounts of information. And then the SEC blanketly says, you have engaged in these violations. And then the companies will ask them, well, based on our entire discussion uh, that we uh, had with you and our own internal legal expertise and external legal expertise, how is this even possible? And they will simply say in most of them, I can't say all of them, but in most of the responses that you get from the SEC and CFTC, it will say the... Um, Certain case law, particularly uh, the famous case that many people are familiar with, like Howey, um, in terms of uh, what what are the characteristics of a security or the Reeves test, what are the, is the test for a note that's subject to like securities laws, um, they will just say, well, these apply. And then they'll ask, wait, uh, how do they apply? Well, it doesn't matter. We're going to be threatening you with extreme legal action and penalties, so you just need to shut down. And so in that way, there's no transparency that the case law really there is not advanced. And that, unfortunately, um, the way that many regulators operate in the United States, seemingly, I'm not necessarily, that's the, it's necessarily my opinion, but many people believe that they consciously do this in order to give the maximum optionality. Yeah, there's, you know, I'm not a, I'm not as well versed in the legal sphere as John here, but there's also the matter of <clears throat> sort of the true nature of SEC's, you know, enforcement rights and how these things are done. Like, for example... SEC would go through, you know, administrative law judge, which has very different characteristics than the normal, you know, uh, normal judge in the normal court of proceedings. So the, a lot of these proceedings happen in a very secretive manner. And, they, you know, like 
do they actually have the right to do this is always a question. There's actually a Supreme Court case right now, one of them that, you know, challenges the administrative law judge and whether they had the right to do certain things. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. But it's like a lot the the <clears throat> SEC um, often case would go after small, you know, small projects that they know they can just bully their way into, you know, paying fines or whatever. And I, I would say that the innovation is definitely flowing out of the United States right now. I mean, like I can tell from my just personal network that people are just saying, you know what, like I don't have the bandwidth or the time or money to do this thing of anticipatory, you know, kind of like planning to fight a ginormous government organization. And in the case of Coinbase, all that yeah. planning might not be enough. They could still say, That's well, right. you're still guilty somehow of these violations, right, right. but we won't tell you even how you're doing these violations. Right. Until we either go to court, we can see how long and drag, uh, dragged out that process can yeah. be with the the XRP lawsuit, which is still not uh, finally resolved. Yeah. And XRP, you know, just a massive, enormous amount of money to fight this thing for a very long period of time. So they're okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might have to pay some fine or whatever. But small projects that just get started that are extremely innovative, um, they they'll just say, you know what, I don't have millions of dollars. I'm going to go to El Salvador, <clears throat> or I'm yeah. going to go to Dubai or whatever, right? I, I mean, I've heard it. I've heard it before that generally that the um, the selection strategy for uh, targets seems to yeah. be kind of bimodal. They either go after the really big guys like Coinbase who yeah. can afford to, you know, have these protracted legal battles and fight the fight. Um, in which case, if they get a if they get a victory there, they get a nice uh, trophy for their um, for the mantle and. Yeah. Or they go after these smaller firms because then they can just sort of squash them down one at yep. a time. And uh, it's just a nice, easy win. And they get to say, oh, we shut down this, you know, yeah. suspicious exchange today. Blah, blah, and, blah. And, Let me tell my boss. And the worst part is that <clears throat> when they arrive at a settlement, even mm -hmm. without, you know, case law being established, they can re refer to it and say, you know, they did something and they admitted, you know, that they were wrong and they settled with us. Right. So that kind of mm -hmm. gives like that their sort of arbitrary enforcement action even more weight, even though, you know, if these like small guys are actually like, you know, fine, like we're, we're just going to like, you know, we have like bona fide, you know, case and we're just going to buy it. Maybe they actually would have won and they, they have no like they have no like, you know, case. Yeah. And there are many you, know, you admitted your you admitted your guilt. So right, right. Yeah. There there are many efforts uh within the United States in order to establish more clarity. Um these come from associations like the Blockchain Association or um self-regulatory organizations like the Global uh Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. And they actively mm -hmm. work with many responsive uh members in Congress who recognize that this type of technology is yeah. incredibly impactful for finance and a bunch of other applications <laughs> generate huge numbers of american jobs yeah. tax revenue etc and it's just because of the lack of regulatory clarity is being driven overseas i mean in, in particular you have people like uh senator cynthia lummis from the state of wyoming and senator Kristen gillibrand um, from the state of New York, who are collaborating with each other across party lines, because mm -hmm. in order to establish greater regulatory clarity to all of these issues in a bill that they have uh, proposed and submitted, um, in order that we can have real regulatory clarity in the United States. And hopefully mm -hmm. that will come because yeah. meanwhile, as Jay and you, Alex, are alluding to, that there are plenty of other jurisdictions like the United Arab Emirates, uh, the United Kingdom, the European Union and others 
uh, that are establishing real regulatory definitions that, for instance, what's even the difference between decentralized finance and like a centralized product project. And as we discussed, there are very different risks and uh, consumer protections that could be implemented and actually laying that out rather than treating yeah. all projects in the exact same way and allowing them to be bulldozed. Yeah. You, if I may add one more thing, I'll keep it really short about this is that the real irony is that their their stated goal is investor protection and then consumer protection. But what has happened is that they failed to find cases like FTX. They failed to, failed to find cases like Terra and Luna UST, you know, disaster. Not only that, so like, for example, the, the you know, um, the creditors for the Terra and Luna are actively being blocked by SEC's own effort to undermine, you know, undermine the creditors. Like meaning like creditors want, you know, 90 cents on a dollar, but because SEC is now going after these creditors for, you know, uh, things that are unrelated to, you know, the Terra and Luna actions that like, you know, like companies like, for example, Gemini or, uh, uh, you know, the the companies that, you know, use uh, Terra and Luna, you know, surreptitiously, right? They just list or whatever it is. When they lose money, they want to make sure that they give money back to, you know, their customers and creditors, right? But SEC is going after them for that very action of trying to recover these funds, which is, unconscionable in my opinion uh and and it's 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 like like who are they really benefiting right are they just going after it to collect you know <laughs> you know fines or uh, do they actually are they actually trying to protect the consumers and you know retail retail investors right because if they are then they would just let this thing go and make sure that like everybody gets their money back right uh so right. that's an irony okay so Obviously, there's a lot of problems with the uh, the, the various federal apparatus that uh, are uh, engaged in this sector. But I'm glad, uh, John, you mentioned um, the Wyoming senator uh, because you guys have chosen to locate Tassin in a state that is very crypto friendly. And there are a number of crypto friendly states uh, now in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. People usually think of something like Florida. I think uh down down here in Texas, we're kind of getting there. Um, but Wyoming is also one of the others that not a lot of people necessarily are considering when they're thinking about the future of crypto uh, and crypto generally in the United States. One of the nice things about the US is that we have this federal system and this gives the states quite a bit of power um, to, you know, shape the various kinds of industries that can thrive uh, within their jurisdictions. And so I wanted to just ask you guys a little bit about the decision to uh, locate your project in Wyoming and what it's been like uh, working with the government there. And, yep. you know, what are your your hopes for the future of the state in terms of its um, involvement in this space? Yeah, I can talk about sort of like decision to move here. And that's absolutely right. In fact, uh, um, a year before I even started working on this, I read a lot of news about, you know, sort of like a pioneering work that legislate legislators here are doing with Caitlin Long, who's, you know, now, um, you know, suing SEC, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Federal Federal Reserve, rather, <laughs> um, for a banking license related issue. But like, you know, the, the there are a lot of pioneering work that was done by uh, folks uh, like Caitlin and you know, legislators here that makes sense in, in, at, a, at a fundamental level. Like, for example, you know, you should be able to create a Bitcoin bank, <laughs> or you should be able to create a 
DAO that, you know, because of its immutable nature, you, you know, you, it should be used as a basis for like legal, you know, document publishing or something like that. Right. Being but, able to catch. That's a, yeah. that's a yeah. decentralized autonomous organization for those Correct. who may not be familiar. Right. Right. So the DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations are mm -hmm. basically a smart contract code that allows you know people to split up assets and then use them for payments uh, or hire contractors or things like that which all of the governance uh, type of um, actions that a normal LLC has or corporations have so they're basically a code version of the you know the legal entity so what Wyoming has done is you know what Let's make sure that they're compatible. Let's make sure that when you create a DAO, that it's uh, recognized as an LLC in the state of Wyoming. And yeah. some of the main benefits of uh, establishing a DAO, uh, Jay was uh, speaking previously about principal agent problems, meaning that if you are the owner of a particular amount of capital or business or an asset, and then you use that asset to be able to acquire a service or someone to act on your behalf, how can you assure that they're actually acting on their behalf? Yeah. And there's a huge issue that's been explored extensively within uh, American corporate law is that how do you um, be able to establish an effective uh, link between the like owners of capital and the managers of a, a corporation or entity, mm -hmm. and then the actual workers mm -hmm. who work for the managers. Yeah. Because oftentimes, uh, and this has been um, well uh, discussed and explored um, by many people, even like Carl Icahn, is that there are many managers who rather than driving real value for the shareholders, they would rather enrich themselves or take things yeah. to contrary to shareholder value. And so what a DAO would allow you to be able to do is that, for instance, say the managers are going to take this action, you could actively vote on whether they're doing it, yep. giving you sort of unprecedented control and greater efficiency. And yep. one of the problems, as Jay was alluding mm -hmm. with this idea, even though it's very uh, compelling, is the fact that under certain U.S. legal understandings that it could be considered a general partnership, meaning that there could be no limitation of liability, that all members of the DAO, if someone in the DAO did a bad thing or the DAO itself did a bad thing, that that could be personally attributed to them. And so um, laws like the Wyoming DAO law are incredibly important because, or the DAO LLC law, because it helps to be able to combine this incredibly uh, powerful and innovative new corporate structure enabled through blockchain with uh, limitations and liability and other things that provide regulatory certainty for people who want to yeah. use this type of innovation. Yeah. And I, I, mm. I, I mean, among those things, so those are the reasons why, I mean, the Wyoming folks here had no idea I was going to move here. Clearly, I'm <laughs> nobody, right? So I, but I, when I came here and looked at all those things, it was like a good sign that legislators care about sort of like, you know, innovating from the law side to meet up with the realities of the tech. And that really gave me, you know, a, a good, you know, positive feeling about the state's future. And uh, yeah, that's why I moved here. And then, you know, when, project really took off and we got some investment, you know, we located our HQ here. And do you see other states uh, following suit with this? Has Wyoming benefited um, from being open to this and being sort of at the forefront of establishing, I would say, uh, industry friendly regulation? Right. Um, do, do you see that, that Wyoming has become a model for other states to follow or emulate? Well, so that I think, I mean, just being, you know, very like open about my take on it is that I think that remains to be seen, unfortunately, meaning that mm -hmm. 
the laws <clears throat> were passed in 2018, I believe, or something like that. There were a series of laws that are passed and the legislators really, you know, like uh, took it up on themselves to make the <clears throat> legal environment more uh, amenable. But the reality of the matter is that not a lot of physical relocation of businesses have happened. Um, so it's it's a little like it's 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 still kind of sour the you know the you know the legislators in, in their mindset they haven't seen a real like growth in you know, high paying jobs or anything like that we're sort of an exception and there are a few other companies that have moved here that are blockchain related yeah Tassin yeah. Uh, just for uh, background for the viewers yeah. uh, Tassin our worldwide headquarters is in uh, Cheyenne Wyoming right in the downtown a few blocks from a bunch of historic sites and the Wyoming State Capitol. And we have about uh, seven to eight or so employees that work for us here. So we have like a real physical presence on the ground in the right. state. Of course, there are uh, benefits that can be extracted in terms of being a, a big center for uh, corporate filings. I mean, Delaware has obviously seen that. Um, and uh, Wyoming, actually, in terms of corporate filings, is the second highest for corporate filings yeah. in the United States as well. Um, so I think, you know, with us and people that we've talked to, I think, um, you know, a lot, as Jay said, is yet to be seen. However, there are particularly with our presence here and, you know, sort of stumping for the state and, you know, highlighting the terrific work uh, that the Wyoming government has been able to do, that there are more people who are interested. And so in terms of like physical presence in the state, you know, right. that's yet to be seen. But certainly in terms of the influence of the regulations upon other states, right. uh, many of the laws that Wyoming has passed have been pretty, pretty much copy and pasted in yeah. other uh, jurisdictions. What really sets Wyoming apart, though, is that because uh, it's a relatively politically unified state, um, and not only politically unified, but there's a common understanding across both parties that we want to do things that help to promote uh, business and innovation. Unfortunately, in many other states, like, for instance, uh, Illinois or New York, this is just my perception. I think it's reflected in the laws and regulations being passed in those states that blockchain becomes uh, a partisan issue and that if uh, the dominant party is uh, championing it, then it needs to be or uh, if either party is championing it, then it needs to be taken down. That's why we've seen somewhat draconian laws uh, come out of New York in particular toward blockchain. But for the more forward thinking states like Texas and uh, Florida, um, they're already just following the yeah. um, foundation that Wyoming is laid yeah. out. This is sort of like a litmus test for like pragmatic governance and government versus like very partisan government where you mm. see that even though, you know, uh, Wyoming is sort of like, you know, the overwhelmingly Republican, there is a bipartisan action. And a lot of the, for example, uh, stable token, you know, act was like, you know, co-written there. These acts were co-written by the... Do you uh, want to give for the uh, viewers uh, and listeners, do you want to give some background on the stable token or um, is that a topic oh, that you... Like no, to sure. Start? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the stable token. Let, let's get into it if you, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we we were um, we we spoke in you know support of this and what the state is well maybe some background on what oh, yeah, the yeah. tokens are and all right, that right right yeah <laughs> that, that would be good yeah um, so, uh, apologies um, so the what stable coins are and what stable tokens are is a it's a um, so when you look when you think about Bitcoin or you know Ethereum or whatever their price mm. versus dollar is wildly fluctuating and the reason for that is because of demand and because of you know other things that are happening uh it's somewhat similar to gold or silver where it's some it's become as you know they they are speculative assets what a civil coin is a concept to 
flatten the price and peg it to a US dollar or euro or yen or whatever it is uh, so that you know the tokens themselves can be used uh, as a you know meaningful means of uh, you know uh, like merchant transaction and things like that. So if I wanted to buy something online, if I'm talking about really wildly fluctuating asset, then I might not want to use it for buying something or you know that like I'm going to regret it when it goes up or right. that the merchant's going to suffer because they you know transacted in something that went down right. So like the stable coins are a uh, uh, a means to like have a dollar pegged or something like that. And there are a lot of different mechanisms by, by which <clears throat> projects do this. One of them is sort of like what's called a, you know, a full reserve stable token or stable coin where there mm -hmm. is a, if I deposit $10, they, they create $10 worth of token and then they, you know, hold that $10 in some like secure means uh, like a you know, like a T note, a T a treasury bill note, or whatever, right? That's like a right. full reserve. And then there is a uh, sort of like what's called the algorithmically balanced uh, stable coins that use a uh, various uh, uh, trading mechanisms to ensure that whatever assets that they have roughly equals the amount of money that was initially deposited another word for algorithmic stable token tokens yeah. is uh radioactive waste stay away <laughs> for, for, <laughs> my opinion yeah yeah i mean so one-to-one so like, -one mapping right yeah try to try to right but then the thing is that when a lot of the algorithmic stable coins holdings are you know crypto themselves you're talking about highly volatile asset class that also moves in tandem because they, you know, in, in the larger macroeconomic, you know, perspective, they're viewed as a speculative asset entirely, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to like, oh, Bitcoin is stable. It's really solid. Uh, so they don't move down ever, right? It, it rarely happens that way. It, and, it moves, you know, kind of together. Yeah. And what's really exciting is that Wyoming, I mean, to our knowledge, yeah. is the first jurisdiction in the entire world when we talk about what you've said, Alex, about how the United States is one of the only countries in which there's really any form of true federalism yeah. that uh, states, even though uh, there might be a larger uh, a political climate or something else going on in the world, that they can sort of maintain an independent identity. And that's what makes the United States so, so great. And that was ultimately the vision of our founding fathers and whatnot, that Wyoming is going to be the first jurisdiction to actually issue its own stable token that even for many of the more secure projects, you can find that from Tether, uh, USDT, or from Circle, USDC. Uh, there actually have been quite a few uh, depegging events where the question arises, do they actually have the reserves to be able to maintain right. that peg? Right. And so the Wyoming stable token, by being operated by the state of Wyoming and having the trust, like the confidence that that sort of uh, thing has, and particularly in terms of uh, Wyoming's historic leadership within blockchain, that it's a very, very exciting development and ultimately unprecedented. Yeah. And the important thing is that in the <clears throat> in the language of the uh, mission of the Wyoming stable token, they say that it's going to be um, dollar backed, meaning like it's using a most most conservative means to ensure that there is a full reserve, right? So it mm -hmm. if you deposit ten dollars, it's going to hold that ten dollars in in basically a uh, you know treasury bill, which is unless federal government collapses, you're going to be able to redeem it for cash, right? So as opposed to you know having a privately issued stable coin where you have ten dollar that turns into 
you know, ten dollars worth of Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin price goes down, and like yeah. all of a sudden, you don't have ten dollars that you can redeem. Um, so there is a lot of like degree of transparency and control that uh, you know, Wyoming as a state government is, you know, making sure that it's available. So in some sense, like they're the ones that are more um, keen on sort of like transparency angle of this, right? Like so, USDT, USDC. I have no idea what their reserves are. Uh, like you know, Terra, Luna, which was another stable coin that went belly up. No one knew what the reserves were. And, but, uh, you know, in a kind of an ironic way that this like experiments uh, that are allowed by federalism is allowing for more transparent crypto, you know, uh, uh, you know, stable, stable token, essentially. And that, that is, a, that's actually very good. That's, I think like the, you know, governance experimentation at, you know, at its finest. And what's really exciting about this, two very exciting things about this process is that uh, informally, because we're one of the few companies that's, you know, actually has a heavy physical presence within the state. And we have a lot of expertise, not only in building our own uh, revolutionary network for the future of blockchain and crypto, um, helping to help out build a project TXA, and then the Tassin exchange on top of that, but with our presence here. Um, we've been able to consult with several uh, government figures on how this type of uh, stable token should be uh, architected. And uh, what is really great about a place like Wyoming, like if you're an entrepreneur here um, in terms of getting any sort of excitement, enthusiasm, people who support innovation, that because it's a relatively small state and jurisdiction and because of their sort of pioneering mindset when people first came out and, and settled out here, be, breaking out of their existing mold and the way they were thinking. Yeah. That they are very open uh, to uh, this type of innovation, and uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, the stable token itself is. There's a, a commission that includes various figures um, in uh, Wyoming on it, including the governor's office and treasurer's office, yeah. and uh, Governor Mark Dor Gordon. I mean, not only has he just done a fantastic job across many areas of uh, governance here in the state, but is absolutely committed to this project, and we expect that ultimately it will launch sometime. Yeah probably either late 2023 or early 2024. Yeah, but the upshot so, is that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so I, I wanted to just uh, real quick, uh, I guess, linger on this point a little bit more. Um, given that you are one of the few uh, crypto companies that has physically created a real presence in the state and has created jobs in the state and continues to engage very actively in affairs uh, locally in the capital... Um, how has that been received? I mean, do, do you want to talk uh, or I guess, would you uh, talk a little bit more about the uh, relationship that you've been able to establish uh, in the state, sort of the, the the level of access that you have by being there? And also, you know, how important it has been that you made this uh, this real commitment to actually, you know, having a, a genuine presence in the state when other people are maybe, you know, phoning it in or, or, or whatnot. Yeah, so I, I can cover a little bit and then John can speak more. Um, I, I think the <clears throat> so access aspect has been great, but it's already because the state, you know, folks like let's both on the legislation side and the you know, administration side were already very open to citizenry uh, overall. Like, for example, you know, uh, I can just go, go into the state capitol building and then just sit on any any you know committee meeting. Like, you know, I don't even have to sign in. I just go in there. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is this is an open carry state. So, you know, uh, 
I'm not sure there are actual regulations governing that, but, <laughs> but no, so, it, it symbolizes yeah. like both their uh, openness yeah. and the security and trust that people have in the state and right. the accountability that the government feels because Wyoming is one of the few states in which, yeah, there are no uh, metal detectors. There are no armed guards. Right. And this creates a horrible perception. I mean, all across uh, the world when people feel that their leaders aren't truly representing them. Yeah. And so that's something that Wyoming well, very much stands for. And the, and the government people here have nothing to worry about. They actually do a good job. So that's, that's yeah. the thing. And so like, so that kind of is like an indicator of how open the government is. And because of the size of the government is small and they're very physically responsible that they don't spend money on silly things that, you know, we can we can sort of trust them. So this is like one place where like, you know, government is willing to engage with um, businesses and new kind of innovations. And they're willing to engage with average citizenry on a much more regular basis. So the access portion, I think, has already been there. Uh, we were just taking advantage of sort of the government's openness and administration's willingness to talk. And so that, that tells you something about small government, I think. And then <laughs> the next part is that the, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, sort of like the the stable token, like uh, the initiative, is not something that we started by by any measure. This is something that uh, state senators and you know uh, representatives have you know started on their own, saying, "Okay, we have all these great blockchain supporting laws. How can we expand on it and benefit from it?" Right, and so like they're the one who started, and then we're helping them sort of like on the technical side, uh, in terms of like you know whether we get selected as a vendor or not. And so it's like the physical being here has helped us understand sort of like what would, you know, uh, a active and, you know, <clears throat> government that is willing to experiment look like. That actually helped me understand it because I went to Washington, D.C. is a completely different <laughs> situation. <laughs> and I lived in Illinois and California is a completely different situation. I, I can't even get get a, I couldn't even get a hold of my own you know, rep representative when I was in California. So this is this has been a completely different kind of expectation of what a system that works and government is accessible could help like companies like us. And by the way, like we're not asking, we didn't ask uh, or receive any kind of like freebies from state to move here, right? And they also respect that, meaning that the state government, you know, is basically saying, hey, like, you know, through policy and goodwill and good governance, they're seeing more businesses form rather than giving like free free cash and stuff for you know big huge companies to relocate, right? So like mm. the, our experience has been very positive. On yeah, that. definitely. And I would say that um, in a similar way to having uh, various leaders of the Wyoming government and then the members of the legislature in the same way that they are very accountable yeah. uh, to people and uh, in terms of the uh, access that uh, people like have to them and in terms of their like uh, governing of the state, because Wyoming is one of the few states that has an enormous rainy day fund surplus that's not rapidly being depleted yeah. like in many states right now. Um, you also find that they're able to tell whether people are you know generally committed rather than being people who will just come in here and have some crazy idea and maybe get a blank check from the state, which often happens yeah. in a lot of other states um, for other industries. And what I yeah. think is really exciting, um, and I think this gets to the the topic of the, or, uh, the overall topic of your uh, podcast, Alex, is that Wyoming, in terms of passing these type of laws, not only governing blockchain, because the Wyoming as a whole, uh, 
blockchain and technology committee that regularly meets and comes up with new ideas and how to advance things. And so not only have they covered uh, huge amounts of potential uh, regulation or clarity for uh, uh, and new ideas for blockchain, but they're also now at their most recent me uh, meeting, um, which you can watch online YouTube, the Wyoming Select Committee on Blockchain and Financial Technology, I believe it's called, also going into things like uh, artificial intelligence and how can Wyoming you right. know, be uh, you know a fledgling uh, center for that industry as well. And yeah. what's really exciting about that, not only the, the, the focus and the expertise that you have here um, and the openness and receptivity of people in the government to these cool ideas, is that we can find that like if a jurisdiction wants to engage in this type of uh, experimentation and focus mm -hmm. when uh, many uh, national regulators and leaders are you know entangled with uh, other things that they can't be concerned about really pushing uh, toward decentralized technologies and whatnot that you can have a different like set of states both within countries um you know charter cities and um you know countries themselves you know places like uh, El Salvador or the United Arab Emirates and really create a uh, a network of different states that is collaborating very heavily in this exciting process and moving forward that people can learn from each other and be able to create a very positive feedback loop um, that's going to be able to help deliver us the innovations in both uh, government, uh, technology, and society that are going to lead us forward. Yeah, I think that once the stable token, kind of coming back to the stable token a little bit, once that gets launched and it's actually bringing in, you know, like tangible benefit to business formation, capital formation, and like actual revenue to the state, other states are going to just say, yeah, we want something like that too. Why do we have to like, you know, like be left behind, right? And this is like something that is, you know, uh, something that is ultimately beneficial to them. And like, as far as like the, us being physically here and creating jobs has actually helped us quite a bit in understanding like what are the needs for these like smaller or you know more like innovative states like for example i like you know we didn't know that they were working on stable token uh you know innovation until we were invited for like initial like first like talk in support of it and we did some research and it was like wow this is a great idea yeah. so like i i feel like our being here has been very much synergistic like we have access uh, but also we, you know, through that access, we're hearing a lot of things that, you know, uh, they might not know how to do technically, but like we know how to do technically. So like we're, we're able to bounce ideas and create new like structures for, uh, you know, state that I think could be like a, like a, uh, a, a good feedback loop for other states too. Like they'll see it and say, yeah, wow, this, this thing works. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the, the one word that keeps coming to my mind when you're talking about the conditions on the ground and sort of the state's attitude towards governance and towards their own citizens and towards the industry is uh, healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which shouldn't be that like um, that that big of a deal. But these days with so much um, misgovernance, uh, just to have like a healthy government that isn't playing favorites, that is just making good policy and is, um, you know, inviting citizens uh, to come in and take advantage of that policy. Yeah. It, it, it seems, you know, groundbreaking at this point because almost <laughs> nobody's actually doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, and in addition to all that as well, that they are focusing actively on helping to specifically encourage technologies that like uh, blockchain or the responsible use of artificial intelligence that'll ensure that 
uh, these type of policies continue not only in Wyoming, but to the extent that other uh, states can either learn from Wyoming or individuals outside can tap into the structures that Wyoming has created, yeah. ensuring that's uh, decentralized uh, governance, uh, financial future for people worldwide. Yeah. And as far as like healthy government, I absolutely agree. I feel like, you know, there is a meaningful difference between our, my <laughs> experience interacting with um, folks here in the government uh, compared to folks over there <laughs> somewhere else, California, whatever. And and I'll just give you really pretty anecdotal evidence. I'm so sorry for this. Sure. Um, like for example, um, uh, DMV, <laughs> which is you know usually the worst of the government organizations. So in California, it was it was enormously difficult to do anything very simple. Uh, but here, like I had to just you know transfer the you know, license. It was like okay, come in one day. Uh, just wait for maybe like. 15 minutes, get the, get the license done. Right. So it's like a, a completely different, you know, experience in terms of like the, the government efficiency. And then like, just even at the, like a uh, rank and file level of, I, I don't, I don't mean to pick, you know, depict the too rosy a picture. There's still government books, but like the rank and file members of the, the administration, meaning like the you know, DMV, for example, they were extremely polite. Uh, they call you back and say, hey, like, you know, uh, you don't have to be, sit here <laughs> and wait for us. We can just call you and then you can come back. Right. So there, there's sort of like a level of like, um, you know, togetherness, right? Like the between the government and the governed that I, I feel like uh, this is something that should be like really studied hard and replicated across the board. And, and one of the most basic things in order to ensure yeah. uh, there's there's a foundation to build anything off uh, fundamentally is is safety and security yeah. uh, that we can see that, that um, given, in my opinion, at least, if you look at the actions that, you know, the president of El Salvador, uh, yeah. Nayib Bukele, has taken in order to ensure the safety and security of his people, then, wow, there's all these tech companies that are going yeah. down there and uh, um, the incredibly responsive attitude of the government and just great things can happen. And similarly, in a very, st uh, in a state like Wyoming, that takes uh, safety and security and civil society uh, very seriously, yeah. that it is um, benefiting a lot off that, I think, in the long term. And I think if other states uh, want to pursue some of the stuff that Wyoming has and ultimately truly be able to provide for their citizens, they should ensure that uh, and they should realize that safety and security is the utter foundation of that. And similar to what you were saying before, Alex, in terms of healthy yeah. We shouldn't have to think necessarily that safety and security is something that is absurd <laughs> or that should be rare. I mean, it's the absolute foundation of a society. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I suspect there's something going on in my background, but I don't that know. Was a, that was a cameo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have a guest so, appearance. Um, okay. uh, yeah, so um, safety and security, yes. And it's it's it, it's yeah it really is just remarkable how simple um how very simple things can just ensure trust and get people to invest and get people to actually have hope for the future i mean yeah. this entire conversation you've been talking about you know what's going on with the stable coin and what's going on with crypto and the DAOs, and now you're uh you've alluded to like uh, their development or their interest at least in ai in the state and i'm just thinking of like there's got to be like some sort of like um like uh like like Wyoming futurism ideology that's developing <laughs> where you get like silicon planes and you're just imagining these you know large um 
large complex mega structures in the middle of uh wyoming i think that'd be like an interesting aesthetic to the state, the state vehicle is the cyber truck <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> well well yeah possibly i mean like i i feel like there's a you know like going back to some of the like criticisms that peter Thiel had which is which are valid right like meaning like looking at like a past view of the future uh, americans are going to work 30 hours you know we're going to be so productive that like right leave rest of the world behind i think that there's still a chance we can make that happen i mean i i, I want to see the future where we can make that happen and the thing thing is that like you know i i think that there there's a kind of like you know uh states where no one pays attention to or like you know where all the things are going wrong are on the sort of like you know uh california or new york or whatever it is so like they're struggling to kind of like even just keep things working and there are states that are you know all around united states where you know they're quietly innovating they're quietly like trying to think look at all these examples and say you know what? i don't want to do that like so like it's, it feels like you know how uh lee kuan yu there was an interview where uh i think mm. it was charlie rose um so it was like a kind of like a safe uh, you know uh, place where charlie rose would say very like easy stuff but he would he would say like what you know talk the question was like uh tell me about your experience in united kingdom and how that like changed your perspective on how like singapore is governed and he said yeah i, I studied in uk uh on you this was and he said um i've learned all the right things and i've looked around and i've learned all the things that we shouldn't do in singapore <laughs> and they came <laughs> back and just did exactly that and so like it's also like you know that kind of like knowing what not to do and just like knowing which road not to even take i think that's a that's a and great i i really like this line of uh discussion and conversation particularly focusing on places like uh singapore as jay has mm -hmm. and uh alex you bringing up uh the fact that uh it's it seems like it would be a somewhat like unexpected place yeah because if we look at the grand scope of history uh at the places that have by far influenced uh the largest um uh, groups of people and the the rise and fall of empires and uh, the the zeitgeist at any particular time. I mean, for mm -hmm. instance, how influential was Judea during the Roman Empire? How influential was the Arabian Desert or like the coast on the Red Sea uh, during the reign of the uh, the Eastern Romans and uh, the Persian Empire? How important was uh, Mongolia uh, before the rise of Genghis Khan? So, right. if we want to move forward and understand or in, in particular, places like uh, Singapore. I mean, how important was uh, Singapore, for instance? Um, I mean, I understand it was a, a British naval base and all that, but like before, uh, you know, Lee Kuan Yew or the the UAE uh, before they've been doing everything that they've been doing. So I would really encourage uh, all of us to uh, think about this point. I really encourage anyone listening to this that the places that determine the scope of the future, the places where uh, they could there could be uh, cities of the future, the greatest technological innovations or uh, new intellectual developments that really change mankind. In my view, they will occur um, most likely in the uh, regions that you would uh, least likely uh, think they would occur in. Yeah. In other words, we could have a giant tower in the middle of a country. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, this is. This oh. uh, this point, John, I'm glad you emphasized it is uh, one that actually uh, ties nicely in with my previous conversation with Cody Moser, who's a, a cognitive science PhD over at um, University of California Merced. 
And uh, we talked a little bit about uh, one of his papers um, analyzing uh, core periphery networks. These are basically networks where there is a, a centralized core and then there are all these peripheral nodes. And it turns out that almost all the innovation uh, in these networks happens uh, on the periphery. And you actually need uh, innovation coming from the periphery back into the, uh, the central nodes in order for these networks to continually uh, to continue to be adaptive and not just uh, be uh, exploitive. And so almost all the exploration of the explore exploit trade-off uh, happens as a result of the core's connection to the periphery. And so um, it's a very nice point that you made uh, on that. Thank you. I wanted to, um, I, I guess I wanted to lean a little bit more into kind of the future of Tassin and the future of um, your presence in the state. What kind of things are you guys working on? I know you're very busy building out the exchange yeah. right now. Um, and sort of what are your, your 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 plans and your vision for the future? Yeah, so we are, you know, continuing to uh, provide, you know, technical uh, con consultation whenever asked to Wyoming, uh, Wyoming State on the Wyoming Stable Token. Uh, so that's part of it. Uh, but large, you know, most of our efforts is, in, as you mentioned, <clears throat> building the 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 hybrid decentralized exchange, which is a sort of like a centralized uh, order book, but you know, decentralized, uh, you know, like settlement. And then mm -hmm. also building the settlement network that you know other exchanges can build on top of. So that's like uh, sort of like our primary goal. But you know, my you know sort of like a long term project is to then what else can we do with this you know open architecture cross chain settlement network? One of the interesting idea that could pop up is you know <clears throat> what if uh, you know when you're uh, so so let's let's think about like IPO space on the startup world. Like now it used to be like, you know, during the dot-com bubble, of course it was a bubble time, but you could go from nothing to IPO within six months and, you know, uh, uh, go public, right? Um, so like cost of going public was either low or it was underwritten by bubble economy or whatever it was, but it was fast. Now in the startups take about 10 years to go public or, you know, 10 years to get acquired or whatever it is, which means that because of the period of incubation is so long that capital formation, in my view, actually, I think effectively slow down because until they cash out, they really, you know, can invest in more things or do something else, right? Like the startup founders, I think like when they first start, like, Rather than, you know, young people having maybe like five different tries at a startup, now they have two tries, right? So which is yeah. which is not not a good thing. It, it doesn't accelerate innovation or development or entrepreneurship in the United States. It actually discourages people and people go work for Google or Facebook and they just stay there forever, right? So my vision and what I hope to build is <clears throat> what if we have a uh, process that is completely compliant and legal that makes it like from uh, formation of the company to issuing uh, and going public a lot easier process, right? Maybe instead of like, you know, it taking $5 million uh, to do it. What if it's like one fifth or one third, I mean, even one eighth the cost, right? Um, mm -hmm. And now, now you're talking about something that is, you know, within reason. For startups like if they if you raise five million you don't want to spend five million going public you want to spend like maybe a hundred thousand or something like that right so that's like one of the things that i think will be enabled by um this uh 
settlement network that we're building. And how that's possible is, okay, one thing that uh, there in, in the traditional finance, there's an enormous amount of cost of coordination between uh, different organizations, right? Like when you issue a new stock, you have to get an underwriter, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to get an investment bank and all that stuff. So I think that there is a way to like uh, reduce all of that and automate that. And I think that's one part that we hope to help um, uh, through our like, you know, kind of ex experience developing these systems. And second part is, um, startups have a very limited, you know, a need in terms of like, you know, complexity in terms of like their corporate structure. So like, there's no reason why it should take multiple, you know, years to go to public, you know, just from the start of the filing process. What if it was all automated? What if it's, you know, because these things are all like expectations from the government, right? So which means that you automate the things that are expected and make sure that they're, you know, continuously filed and updated that way, like, you going from start of the idea to get an investment to going public could be as short as six to nine months. And I think that would really change the dynamics in terms of like formation of capital, uh, churn of the profit made from, you know, previously successful business into, you know, investment in the new. And I think that could like speed up and accelerate the pace of innovation in the United States uh, instead of like, expecting founders to like pick and choose between two surefire ideas because they can only do two <laughs> in their lifetime because by the time that their second one you know succeeds or fails it they're 40 years old that <laughs> they have family or whatever in order is. to in order to yeah. enable these types of innovations and developments it's yeah. very key for the united states moving forward uh to have uh in a, an approach toward the regulation of commodities and securities and and, and banking yeah. as Unfortunately, some of the Wyoming crypto banks like uh, Custodia have encountered vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Kansas City Fed yeah. is that mm -hmm. they should embrace regulatory clarity and uh, innovation and recognize that in this increasingly fragmented and decentralized world, that if the United States doesn't do it, another country yeah. will. Oh, yeah. But circling back to like, let's say that the policy mechanism is like just there's no no action, right? Inaction. Then how do we make this vision into future is that. You know, um, you can't like, let's just start with the assumption that fine, like these tokens, like so technologies that speed up the um, going public process uh, mm. could use tokens to make sure that things are easier to keep track of and easier to like, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to yeah. like accelerate the process, yeah. right? L right now, everything is paperwork, right? But what if right. like, you know, greater portion of these like going public process is automated, uh, and they're done through smart contracts. And then the securities are initially issued already as a security token. That's fine. Like there's a mechanism, like, if SEC is already thinking every token is a security, then they have no problem with probably companies issuing, you know, uh, correctly filed uh, tokens that are considered securities, right? Yeah, it'll, so, be, it'll be very interesting to see where this develops. Yeah, so, so where we're going with this, just, you know, hypothetically, and this is where like we're kind of developing towards is that by creating these like automation uh, surrounding uh, issuance and linkage of entities, and then the the linking the automation in terms of fundraising that files for the right paperwork and you know seeks out the right people, and then automation in terms of underwriting for the IPO process, and then hooking it up together so that they all operate on a open architecture. I think that, like I said, 
you know, uh, I, I, I don't have a substantial like evidence to say this, but I believe that those things combined together will reduce the time for companies to go public. Um, so, you know, like right now, I mean, that still happens right now, but it's all pink sheet, right? Like it's like, a, uh, you know, like the companies that want to go public, they still file stuff with SEC, except, you know, they're, they're, they're just being traded in the OTCBB anyways. Uh, but what's the difference between that and a responsibly filed paperwork for a blockchain what types, company? What types of, uh, with this type of, you know, use of, potential use of blockchain technology may be combined in a certain way with yeah. artificial intelligence. I mean, the government, many government agencies, it is true, they are overworked, they have way too much uh, work or with not enough employees. And so this this type of like automated system can help to be able to uh, relieve this potential type of automated system. Right. Could help to be able to uh, relieve the bur- uh, relieve the burden on uh, government staff, increase the eff- efficacy of administration, and um, uh, three, uh, maintain the same quality or even a higher quality of uh, consumer protection. Yeah, and and so those are things that you know I hope to uh, you know show off at some point you know, many years down the road. And those are some mm-hmm. of the things that we're building these building blocks for. Like, as, you know, as one uh, final thing, do you yeah. want to go over the timeline for the uh, the cross chain swap app and all that? Oh, I, I, I uh, before uh, yeah. So like, I'll quickly cover that, and you know, I'm sure you have more more pressing questions to ask. Well, 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 yeah. well, okay, okay. So um, I'll just um, yeah. redirect this real quick. Um, sure. So let's go over, I don't know what you mean by this cross-chain swap app. I, I think you yeah. mentioned something about that in the beginning, the importance of cross-chain settlement. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll go over that. And then I have uh, one more final question. You both have been very generous with your time today. Yeah. Uh, and then I think we can wrap it up. Okay, Sounds awesome. Great. Yeah, so uh, by the way, thanks for opportunity to kind of like talk about what we're excited on, what, what we're working on. Uh, and uh, so cross-chain, um, so we we have been building an exchange that is investor and sorry, institutional grade, meaning like mm-hmm. if they were to trade, you know, um, at a institution, like the speed and the, the, uh, <clears throat> the efficacy, the, how effective it is, is, you know, roughly on par. Um, but what we've also noticed is that in the, you know, average, like, you know, not even people who trade on TD Ameritrade or whatever, because they they still go through some like interface that is unfamiliar to them at the very beginning, right? Like buying and selling stocks. What does a bid mean? What does it ask me? What is a limit order, right? So, but most um, people uh, who still want to like, exchange assets one for another so that swap you know basically swapping one asset to another have a very simplified interface and so what we're doing is we built this you know very complicated but uh there's an api layer that allows for a simpler you know simpler user experience so we're releasing the swap app we're also releasing the exchange in case you want the full thing but this swap app would allow things like you know, hey, I just want to change my ETH on Ethereum for, you know, uh, Matic, which is on Polygon. How do I do that? Right now, you would have to go to centralized exchange and then, you know, buy one for the other. And then you can then withdraw from, you know, uh, the exchange. But with the decentralized exchange and settlement that we're building, you don't have to deposit any money into any exchange. Like you just go from one network to another network uh, and swap for 
swap one network's asset for another network's asset and done. And you can just withdraw from there. And so mm -hmm. this, I think, will allow, you know, kind of, it, it creates an alternative for traders and swap, you know, app users. And it'll be a lot faster process, lower fees and all that stuff. So we're very excited. It's going to be in about two months. And we're we're launching in about four different networks. So Ethereum, uh, Polygon, uh, Arbitrum, and um, <clears throat> Rootstock. So these are these are networks that you know have been proven, battle tested, and we're deploying our sort of like you know smart contracts in these so that it, it can interact. One other really cool thing that we're doing because uh, we believe so much in the power of uh, decentralized technologies and networks. Mm -hmm. is that uh, Tassin is going to be uh, hosting an uh, unofficial uh, Urbit conference yeah. in the uh, third week of August. So yeah. if you are uh, into Urbit, um, you can find that under uh, reassembly or, you know, I'm sure that uh, uh, on a, you can find it under reassembly on Eventbrite or via Jay's um, uh, Twitter bio and all yeah, that. Yeah, you, you can, you, you, mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have to go into so much detail there, but yeah, you can just go to uh, Twitter and, you know, find out more. Yeah, that meets great, some good people. Have a nice time. Yeah. Reassembly 2023, Cheyenne, Wyoming, folks. Yes, there you go. Um, all right. So uh, my last question for you guys, and feel free to both um, give this a, a shot if you want, um, is for a normal person listening, someone who's maybe not involved in the space, obviously a lot of people that listen to the show are, uh, frankly, uh, probably in tech. They work in tech or they're adjacent to tech in some ways. Um, there's a lot of people listening who... Um, would at least be uh, at a very basic level familiar with something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but maybe they're not totally pilled on the real, um, I guess, insight or vision that pe some people have for decentralized finance. Um, you know, people like ourselves, uh, you know, I've been in this space uh, in to varying capacities for several years now. And obviously you guys are, are are totally down in the trenches about as far in it as anyone can be. So my question for you is, why should we care about decentralized finance? Some people, it seems like it's a, almost a casino game or, you know, it's like, oh, you're you're just trying to create like a, a cyber bank or something weird like that. So yeah. so what is your what is your pitch on why as human beings we should care about decentralized finance? Yeah, so. I'll keep it really short. Um, so I'm, 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 I rarely pull race card, but I am of Korean descent, and uh, I, I immigrated in 1994. And the, the in 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 Korean culture, there is a concept of peer lending. So meaning like you know, uh, friends would get together, and then they would just pull money in, and then they would rotate and lend out money to you know whoever needs to like start a business or you know just pay for something or whatever it is, and so. Peer finance, peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, financing and lending is old as humankind. I mean, I'm sure that's just one example from Korean culture, but I'm sure there are other examples from, you know, other cultures that are, you know, a lot long ago or thousands of years ago. And I'm sure there are you know, examples like that. So meaning like <clears throat> decentralized finance is the norm. That is the human origin. <laughs> that is the, that we are going back to the roots when we say decentralized finance, because, you know, Having all these intermediary uh, where we get some like efficiency benefit is a relative modern thing, right? So mm -hmm. meaning, you know, long, long, longer and longer ago, 
uh, finance was all about between two people. Uh, you know, we still have like complaint letters from um, this, uh, you know, copper merchant, you know, 3000 years ago, <laughs> you know, that let's say become a meme where they complain about, hey, you gave me a poor quality copper for these, you know, you know, coins or whatever, right? And so like finance and deal and lending, all of those things are, you know, older than centralized finance. And in fact, that should be called finance and this should just be called centralized finance. So I think that going back to roots on that and where technology enables this, like removing a lot of these like mediation uh, levels, uh, actually, you know, and allowing for greater like uh, efficiency because now technology is cutting along far enough where peer-to-peer financing and actual DeFi is all possible again at a lower cost, right? So I think that this is now going back to not only the historical roots, but allows for much more honest financial system because now it's like finance at a human scale, right? Like, and I don't want, I don't want to make it sound like a silly, like, you know, <clears throat> uh, a slogan, but like finance at a human scale, as in I need access to capital now, what, <laughs> what options do I have? Right. Whereas if it's all centralized and there are very few options to access to capital, uh, as opposed to if it's now um, disintermediated and between people uh, that uh, that has a you know sort of like a release condition and lending condition all you know programmatically done and it's easy to understand all that stuff, then access to capital becomes a lot easier. So th- th- so I think that's why DeFi is important. Meaning right now it seems like it's all just casinos and uh, frankly speaking, yes, right now it's all casinos. But I think that the promise of the DeFi is that by removing all these intermediation level, the cost of capital goes down, the access of capital goes up, and that, you know, not only that, it's much more honest form of finance. And so that's what I, that's what I think why people should focus on DeFi. And like part of it is we started with money first, right? Like meaning like Bitcoin was a peer-to-peer, you know, electronic cash system where it allows for trustless, you know, payment, you know, and reception and the store value and all that stuff. So like that is enormous, like incredible, like human achievement that now building, you know, programs on top of it allows for, or, you know, in, in a different format allows for this, like a um, removal of central authority that one, like, by the way, they can just lock your money, right? It could happen at any time. It happened to me a couple of times and I didn't do anything wrong. One of yeah. um, as a as a brief addendum yeah. to that, I think Jay laid out the case very clearly and very well. Yeah. As a brief addendum, one of the most important developments within the entire history of human experience has been the idea of the free and the sovereign individual. There have been periods in which uh, sovereignty and freedom has been utterly crushed and periods in which it's been uh, more uh, widely uh, available and widely experienced. Yeah. And in this type of period, ultimately, if you look at various trends around the world, the, the big threat that faces us is that with the centralization of a power, for instance, in the United States, with the recent bank failures within a few financial institutions, with the centralization of power rather than on states' rights in the United States, focusing on the expansive powers of the administrative state and the federal government, that that is being threatened. And the one of the most important things for you to be able to be a free and sovereign individual is that you have uh, control over the assets that you own and that uh, the uh, people with whom you can interact 
yeah. that as the world has become more connected, theoretically allowing for decentralization, mm -hmm. it's already all, uh, also become uh, more uh, prone to uh, potential uh, uh, censorship and control and uh, domination. Yeah. And so something like we're building here at Tassin across the entire ecosystem of blockchain among responsible actors is giving you, the listener, the person um, who is uh, engaging in the world and who cares about your own freedom and your own sovereignty, the ability to be able to actually do it rather than be a pipe dream or yeah. something just written down in a government document somewhere and that's not followed. And, and, and there's an ample evidence of this and I'll keep it really short is that at when you know so for example when roman republic as at its last throws you know one of the egregious things that you know you know opposing political parties did when they took control is you know process proscription right which is just marking these people's asset as now like state <laughs> asset they just stole it and then like auctioned it off to like you know politically well connected and stole so, it after killing the owners, oh, yeah, killing yeah. The owners right, too, yeah. right. so i mean like <laughs> so you know sort of like this like control over the asset and property is central to like you know um central to stability of the system right like it, it, even if i didn't believe in the project of you know d democracy or whatever like the property rights is so fundamental that once you like uh you know dismantle that uh, it's anything goes right uh meaning That's like exactly the, right. no one has trust or no one would believe in the legitimacy legitimacy of the system that willy-nilly steals assets i mean even now that's happening which is like asset forfeiture you know and all that stuff and right. and uh, you know people for saying the wrong things they no longer have access to you know merchant accounts or bank account or whatever and those things are like a, a very worrying trend meaning like the the uh sort of like this degree of control that chokes off like access to capital and merchant you know merchant financing and commerce and i think that uh you know for for those people lessons are obvious like we need rock solid non-governmental you know uh ways to access capital and ways to access money and i, I defy i think argument should not just be oh you know money you know the the number go up but DeFi's argument should be listen like would you rather have a system that you know how it works and rules are relatively consistent uh you know because it's all published and you know contracts are there or smart contracts are there or would you rather have something that someone in some office can just say this guy i don't like gone right so it, I think that's like a relatively straightforward argument to make. Um, and I hope that your listeners, you know, if they were skeptical about like future finance and, you know, crypto, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of bad actors in crypto. Uh, but I think that over long arc of history that, you know, the people who are genuine about like pushing the boundary of technology to get to that level of financial sovereignty uh, for even ensuring financial sovereignty would be a huge benefit to the rest of humanity. So I think that that's why people should care about DeFi. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And um, this has been a great interview, guys. Uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to co uh, come on once again. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I would encourage everybody to check out Tassin. Um, go check out, uh, I guess, Reassembly 2023 uh, coming in August. And yeah. I think what they're doing up in Wyoming is great. So um, thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks, thanks so much again. for the opportunity, Alex. Yeah.
stop this 